0: Welcome to this edition of the CFI CFITrainer.net podcast. As I've mentioned before, many of you have expressed that you like profiles and case studies in our polling. Today, we have a profile with an investigator that spotlights what it's like to balance working in the public and the private sector at the same time. A challenge that I know is familiar to many of you. Jeff Spaulding is a deputy chief in the Middletown, Ohio Fire Department, where he supervises the Fire Investigation Task Force he is also a part-time fire investigator and training coordinator for Fire and Explosion Consultants Incorporated. He's also an instructor at a local technical school and community college. For several years, Chief Spaulding operated his own private sector fire investigation and emergency response training firm. Chief Spaulding is an IEI CFI, a hazardous materials technician, and an Ohio fire safety inspector. Chief Spaulding, you're a busy guy. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Uh yeah, they stay actually fairly busy.
0: So, tell us a little bit about Middletown. You know, we have people who are interested um, on the podcast and, and some of the things that we've done in video on CFI Trainer where they're saying, you know, we want to learn a little bit more about some other people out there that are doing our job. Tell us uh, about Middletown and, and your job there.
1: Uh, well, the city of Middletown uh, is a community in southwest Ohio. Uh, has approximately fifty thousand uh, residents within it, and we're basically an urban center where we have a a, a lot of mixed use type properties. We have a large steel uh, manufacturing facility, as well as a lot of uh, support businesses to that, and uh, paper factories. Um, our demographics go from one extreme to the other, and uh, we're an older community in the Rust Belt. Um, we're starting to recover a little bit from the uh, recession that just. We all have gone through, but a unique place, uh, and, and as far as uh, type of uh, department we are, we're a, a career department um, that operates both fire and EMS services.
0: Okay. Uh, role, you know you have a dual role. You work as a Correct. public safety officer uh, for your fire department and as an investigator on the private side. So tell us about that. You busy?
1: On the fire department side and public side, I'm going to definitely stay busy as a as my role as a deputy chief, I'm uh, responsible for a 24-hour shift of um, the, the, approximately 25, 26 firefighters. So obviously the day-to-day uh, fire and emergency service operations are conducted. We're responsible for those individuals, uh, but I'm also responsible for a, a, a joint police and fire investigation task force, uh, which, again, is comprised of both fire investigators, uh, on the fire department side as well as detectives who have gone through origin and cause training uh, on the police department.
0: Okay. So as you're working different cases, how do you manage, uh, you know, the public and private sector sort of division? How do you avoid conflicts of interest?
1: Uh, The the biggest thing with the conflicts of interest is to make sure that obviously I don't uh, want to investigate any fires uh, in the city of Middletown on the private side that I may have investigated or been involved with on the, uh, public side. Definitely, if it's an incendiary fire, I don't touch those. But I'm fortunate that the majority of the fires that that occur in the city um, uh, have the ability, if for whatever reason, that that client would want us to look at it. There's other investigators in the uh, private investigation company that are able to uh, go and and take care of those events. When we do have instances where individuals with, uh, or investigators with Fire and Explosion Consultants, which is our private company, are investigating. I mean, we cooperate with each other just like I would with any other agency, whether public or private. However, again, we keep our, our investigations themselves independent uh, to just avoid any type of conflict that may arise from that.
0: So let's get a little more specific about that. You know, What are some of the things that investigators have to be aware of if, if you are working both the public and private side?
1: You know, as a public investigator, obviously, the the big concerns would be, uh, as a representative of, we'll just say for general terms, the state or the government, we have to keep in consideration those aspects such as uh, Fourth and uh, Fourth Amendment uh, rights that are extended to those individuals. We obviously don't want to do an investigation and compromise our ability to continue it by not either having consent or a search warrant to return to the scene or to continue the investigation, as well as we don't want to put ourselves in a position where somebody's um, right to remain silent is uh, compromised. On the private side, obviously, we have the ability to kind of... uh, work through those because of the policy of the contract that the individual signed. So we were in a position where we're able to interview mm-hmm. those individuals without having to worry about it being a uh, amendment, amendment right. And we can investigate those fire scenes. But then we also lose some of the tools, such as the ability to do criminal background searches, as well as um, our ability to potentially identify additional uh, witnesses sometimes just because we're, we don't have those local resources that the public side may have.
0: Have you ever had a situation where you, you sort of had to stand aside from one, one side or the other? In what respect? Well, I mean, you were working on a case, let's say, in a public way, got called in on a private side or the other way around, and uh, I don't know, there was a, a potential for you to compromise the investigation in either way?
1: Uh, I, I can think of anything directly. Again, the the closest that I would say i probably come with that is, is being aware of the fire um, before obviously being contacted. Um, you know, an example would be if a local agency wished to utilize our canine, they contact me so that I can triage the event to determine do we send our canine out immediately or can it wait? And then being contacted a day or two later by a let's say, an insurance carrier that wants me to come and investigate the fire. In those instances, obviously, I would have to evaluate, and make sure I'm not doing anything that would be considered I'm working for one side or the other um, and, and create that conflict.
0: Right. All right. I'm, I'm just asking questions because um, I'm thinking, you know, for the investigators who haven't done it, I just thought there might be some things that we could identify for them to, to be aware of. Um, sure. a, a, lot of the, a lot of the folks that I talk to on the public side have these thoughts of being on the private side in their future?
1: Yeah, you know, as far as that transition from public to uh, private investigator, uh, you know, I was very fortunate that when I got into the uh, private side back in the early 2000s, that, you know, exfoliation wasn't as common as it was now. And the, the way that we process and document seems ought to the extent that it was now. But I, I did know you know, and I've learned as it's gone on, is that it's it can be challenging for that public investigator to transition into the private side because now they have to be aware of all these things that I've had the opportunity to learn over the years, such as do I hold the scene or do I process it? Do I have a chance for subrogation? You know, how do I identify any other potential parties? How do I identify if there's a recall? Uh, or that this device may be under a potential recall. What are the statutes of repose for my for the jurisdiction or the state that I'm operating in and conducting this investigation? There's a lot of legal nuances that, as a public investigator, we typically don't have to be as concerned with, just because of the fact that you know our, our role generally is to you know determine the origin and then determine the cause. If the cause is what we consider accidental, we Typically on the public side, we don't go very much further than that. When it's a criminal event, obviously we take it a lot farther. But that's really the big transitions that burning for, of identifying all those different aspects from a civil um, perspective, and then being apply, uh, being able to apply that and, and keep it in your mind as you're as you're going through and you're working uh, different fires.
0: So just like any other job, or like being a good investigator, you're paying attention uh, to the details, being consistent, following the scientific method, and seems to work out, huh?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, when we talk about investigating a fire, they're, you know, the two docs that we use, 921 and 1033, um, you know, they apply to everybody. You know, I was at a seminar once with, basically filled with a bunch of attorneys, and I was presenting, and that was a question posed, does 1033 apply to the public investigator? And at that point, I, it was almost like a wow moment. I'm like, well, yes, it does. Hmm. But I understood what she was getting at. You know that you know, as a public investigator, we still have to do everything as though we were a private. You know, processing a fire scene and determining origin and identifying cause and developing hypotheses do not make a difference whether you're a public or private investigator. Um, I know when I'm working on the public side. I process the fire scene exactly as I would as a private investigator. The only thing I may not do is recover evidence of an accidental fire because you know I don't have a, a vested interest in it at that point. However, I will process and I will identify all the work, uh, all the potential uh, ignition sources, documenting those items whether it's through photography, sketches, getting witness statements all the same information I do on the private side to support my conclusions when developing an opinion on the public side.
0: So have you had situations where you responded to a fire for a public safety call-out and then you were assigned to that fire to investigate for a private entity?
1: Uh, In those instances, I would decline to take the fire. I would would suggest another investigator within uh, FEC or another company.
0: Okay. That was a lot easier answer than I thought there would be. So yeah, how do you find yeah. yourself in the, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I was saying, you just, you, you, you want to avoid this complex. And it's happened to me several times where, uh, you know, I either was the incident commander or I was the investigator, uh, or I may have just gone to assist in another investigator. When I get that phone call, I I'm very upfront with them. And I say, look, I've already been there. I don't, uh, it would be accomplished if I was involved and then again, make a, a referral to another uh, investigator that is in our company or another company itself. Okay.
0: Yeah. I know it may sound like common sense, but I think sometimes some of the common sense things, things are good to discuss.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
0: So what are you thinking about being in this dual role? I mean, how do you feel about the transition over to the private sector At the same time, you're in the public department. I mean, how's that working for you?
1: Uh, It's. uh, I mean, I'm able to separate the two. That really, the biggest challenge is the just the number of or the volume of uh, losses. Because again, there's on the uh, public side. If it's a criminal event, which unfortunately we've been uh, inundated with, it it takes a lot of time and energy to to conduct the follow-ups. You know, the scene is just the beginning that investigation, you know, so it, it makes it challenging uh, to, you know, schedule fire investigations on the private side, uh, knowing that I've got these tasks sitting in front of me uh, on the public side. Uh, but as far as the, to say that it, a transition issue, it's not a, it's nothing that has really concerned me or that I think would concern most other than just making sure that, you know, what the boundaries are between both a public you know when you're operating in a public role versus when you're operating in a uh, private role for example it's probably not the best thing in the world on the private side to uh, essentially interrogate somebody that has no that has no obligation to cooperate with you right and i've heard of that at times where i've heard somebody say well you know i i basically you know essentially he provided a threat of some type of monetary action to try to coerce that individual into talking. And again, on the private side, do we want to be careful? Obviously on the public side, uh coercion can can hurt you as well. But you have again you have to be real careful because the last thing you want to do, let's say as a private investigator, is two years down the road, have an attorney sit there and say, Did you uh talk to my client and say these things to them? And and have to answer to that, especially if you did a recorded statement and it's and it's all clearly documented. Understood. I had recently experienced where an investigator contacted me and said, you know, I basically, I did a recorded statement with this individual who was not my insured and essentially used, uh, you know, some type of threat of monetary uh, punishment. Ie, you would have to pay us all back if you don't tell me the truth. And as I'm listening to it, my jaw is dropping because I'm like, you know first of all, you're going to do, you're going to basically try to coerce a statement out of a private out of an individual you don't represent and it's recorded. you have to be you know those are things that again should be part of your your investigation uh, file. And if you're providing it to your carrier if if that action would go to court or to some type of uh, legal action later on, I mean it could put you in a spot where I think uh, another attorney, especially if you weren't prepared for it, should could put you very, uh, make you very uncomfortable. Uh, it may, it could potentially compromise the investigation. And if they tell you something that's contradicted by your physical scene examination or the evidence you developed, then you indicate that in your opinion uh, when you're de- when you're developing your report, or if you're presenting it at a trial or deposition or whatever it may be, um, you know, on the public side. Obviously, you know, there are interview techniques and tactics, and, and the interviews transition into interrogations, but there's a process, i.e. Mirandizing an individual, that allows you to, to do certain things, again, as long as you're not making any promises of, we'll say, leniency to the individual to cooperate and talk to you. Understood. So so you have to, you know, again, it, it, it's fire investigation, whether, whether it's the scene work or it's the interviews or whatever. Again, there's there's a uh, process and there's legal considerations in every aspect you do.
0: When we were talking before, you uh, mentioned briefly, so it might be a little redundant, but you mentioned briefly that uh, you guys are busy out there. And it sounded to me like you had a lot of public sector cases going on. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that in your area?
1: Sure. I mean, it, it, we're not a large department um, by any means, but it, Based off of the you know the size of our community and the type of activity we have, we we've definitely been extremely busy um, during the, the past year. Uh, we we reorganized our fire investigation unit, created this task force with police and fire personnel um, within the last uh, we'll say year and a half. And in that time, uh, obviously, we've identified a larger number of fires that were incendiary. And going beyond that, have been able to actually uh, identify suspects and make arrests and take things all the way through to uh, uh, trial. Again, it's it's for whatever reason, it's just been very busy.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you, it, I never hear a bad story come out of. Uh... People saying that they took the time to get organized to put together a task force. It always seems like people go, you know, it was really good to have the resources around and to develop a team because I think a lot of the investigators, well, I know it, you do too, are out there alone.
1: Right. Uh, you know, uh, the nice thing about a task force, uh, especially when you're using police and fire personnel, is that you're able to, to take those strengths from both organizations. The fire investigators who typically are firefighters, they know when they're looking at those fire and damage patterns, they can uh, basically cognitively reconstruct how the fire was developing in that area at the time, and, and they're able to translate that at when they're processing the scene. The, fire, the police officers or detectives that are involved in this task force, they have the interviewing skills, they have the criminal investigative skills, and they're able to 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 draw from the information that's provided from the scene examination to identifying witnesses and suspects and, and getting those individuals into, uh, an interview room and potentially getting some type of
0: confession from them. You had a, a case recently that I, I was told about, um, and it involved, <laughs> yeah. it involved a pacemaker.
1: Uh, yes. Um, and September 19th, we, uh, the Middletown division of fire was dispatched, uh, to a residence on the report of a structure fire, and during the initial fire suppression activities, it was identified that the, the potential that the fire may be incendiary, essentially because of uh, it looked like there was areas on fire on the structure that shouldn't be because they weren't connected to the main uh, fire at the time. Okay, uh, and we obviously initiated our task force. We conducted a. Uh, Extensive investigation um, of the fire scene itself. And for approximately three weeks after that scene examination, uh, Detective John Rollins with the Middletown Police Department and I uh, conducted a follow up investigation uh, as we had suspected, based off of the scene examination and the initial information that was provided us by the uh, property owner, that his basically a statement wasn't consistent with anything we saw. Okay. And during a uh, brainstorming session, for lack of a better term, uh, Detective Rollins suggested, what about the pacemaker? What will it tell us? Because we all know the electronic devices can store a lot of information, a lot of, a lot of different things depending on what the purpose of it is, you know, whether it's a, a cell phone or a uh, digital camera or a computer itself. I mean, we had done all those activities.
0: But this was a pacemaker that was on the homeowner, correct?
1: Yeah, this it's an in, it's an internally implanted pacemaker, and basically that device, you know, it assists with making sure that the electrical system of the heart continues to operate the way it's supposed to, as far as you know, producing a heartbeat or heart contraction as as it's needed. The device also records, you know, when the 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 the, the intrinsic rate of the heart goes up or goes below certain levels and such. Okay. So we discussed it, and, uh, you know, I kind of explained what I knew what a pacemaker may or may not have as far as information-wise. And so we we discussed the concept with a cardiologist, and the cardiologist believed that, you know, there would be some data, but he wasn't 100% sure that it would be useful to us.
0: So how did you go about collecting the data?
1: Uh, well, after discussion, we believed that, you know, after finding out that basically it's a very it's a non-invasive process where uh, essentially a technician for the manufacturer that pacemaker um, would be able to use a device that gets somewhere in the area where it is, and not even they don't even have to touch the uh, patient with them, but they can download that information and they can use it for a historical analysis. We went ahead and wrote a search warrant because we believed it was nothing more invasive than say getting a DNA sample or case fingerprints from an individual or a hair sample, whatever it may be. Uh, in fact, it was even less than that because we physically didn't have to touch the, the person. So we wrote the search warrant. We uh, picked up the individual that it was for and uh, met with a technician at a local hospital. The technician needed about 15 seconds to download the data. <laughs> and it was done. We no longer, we were, we had, Obtain the information we needed and no longer needed the individual that we were getting the info from. Um, but the data was extremely uh, informative, more than we had imagined. Uh, unfortunately, because it is still an active case, I can't go into too much more about that. Okay. But uh, again, it was, a, it was an informative tool um, to the point where after that case, within a couple of weeks, we actually had two homicides in November with one of those being a a homicide with a subsequent fire to try to conceal and destroy evidence. Both those individuals had pacemakers, and you know, using the information we had learned on the previous case, we wrote search warrants to get information from those pacemakers and were able to establish an approximate time of when the device indicates that the person was no longer alive. Wow. So that information, especially on the the fire case, um, because we knew that the, the victim at that point, based off of uh, cell phone records and, you know, uh, some information we were slowly getting, that the victim was, was killed several hours before the fire actually occurred. Basically, the individuals left and came back to try to conceal the evidence. So that data was all confirming to that. The same thing with the the murder the day before where the individual was uh, killed. You know, his pacemaker data corroborated with a shots fired call within that area and several witnesses stating that they had heard noises at that residence. So we're able to use, you're able to use that data to corroborate other information you may already have.
0: Wow. Pretty interesting. And, and I, I guess even more interesting to me is that you've had three cases in, in recent months where there's been, you know, data collected from a pacemaker. And I I know there's a lot of other devices that are going into people. So I guess it's something all of us need to be aware of, (laughs) no matter what what side you are of the law.
1: Well, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about that particular case. And the discussion, you know, centers around Fourth, Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights, you know, whether it's self-incrimination or the right to search and, and seize that data and such. So you know, there's there's some individuals that, that you know the the premise of their blog post or their story is you know I shouldn't have to choose between my pacemaker or my medical device and my privacy. Right. Um, you know the the long and the short is you know the government or a fire agency or a law enforcement agency is not going to come and try to download your information unless you're committing a crime and they have probable cause and they have a judge who. Uh, reads the affidavit and agrees and signs the warrant.
0: Right. Well, I mean, you know, hey, look at phone records, look at GPS. You know, there's all, there's yeah. so many places where this is happening.
1: Some of the stuff that people have brought up are like Fitbits. I mean, there there's people have in some of these posts have brought up things I was like, I never even thought about that. You know, yeah. what about a Fitbit? What about an Apple Watch or some card- some type of cardio monitor that you may be wearing, or a, a, you know, a, a pedometer that's monitoring your steps? I mean, it's all it's little bits of the and pieces of the puzzle.
0: Okay. So, Jeff, thanks for uh, wrapping up and, and especially wrapping up some real interesting information about uh, electronic devices and, and and what kind of information they might glean for investigators. Um, Thanks for sharing your perspective and a little bit about Middletown and joining us. No, thank you very much. Like I said, I enjoyed the uh, podcast that you guys have produced in the past. Uh, Hopefully this will be useful for others. Thank you very much for your time. Have a good night. Thanks. You too, sir. Bye-bye. All right. That concludes this podcast. Stay safe. We'll see you next time on CFITrainer.net. And that might be sooner than you're used to. In other words, probably next week. We're going to have a short podcast in the next week or so about the International Training Conference for the International Association of Arson Investigators. We're going to talk to some folks about what's coming up this April in Las Vegas. For the International Association of Arson Investigators and CFITrainer.net, I'm Rod Ammon. Be well.